Okay, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amy Seawright, and I lead the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. And I want to welcome you here today for today's Banyan Tree Leadership Forum with Thant Mintu. Many of you are probably familiar with our Banyan Tree Leadership Forum series, which is CSIS's premier platform for Asian and American leaders to share their views on key issues in US-Southeast Asia relations. And typically, we have political leaders uh, come here, uh, foreign ministers and the like. Uh, but today, I'm really thrilled that, to welcome one of Southeast Asia's most captivating public intellectuals. I'm pleased to have this opportunity to discuss in depth developments in Burma, past and very recent, uh, a country that has leapt into public consciousness in Washington earlier this decade when the reforms began, um, but now has become uh, a more controversial relationship and has sparked policy debates anew about US policy towards Burma. Thant Mintu is an award-winning writer, historian, and conservationist. He served for over a decade with the United Nations, including in peacekeeping operations in Cambodia and the Balkans. And he was an advisor to the Burmese government during the early years of transition from military dictatorship. He lives in Rangoon, or Yangon, where he currently heads Uthant House and Yangon Heritage Trust. And on the last item, um, for those of you who have visited Yangon, uh, you, you have thought to thank for the many architectural treasures that still stand in downtown Yangon. As the world has turned its attention to Burma in recent years, Thant's books, uh, which include The River of Lost Footsteps, um, have become required reading. And I'm thrilled that we could bring him here today to discuss his most recent book, The Hidden History of Burma. Um, and so I also want to let you know that this new book uh, is available for sale, for purchase, and Thant will be signing books after his talk today. So I welcome you to stay behind, buy a book, and have it signed. Um, so with that, let me invite Thant up to the podium to deliver his remarks. Thank you very much, Amy. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure for me to be uh, back in Washington, where I lived um, about a year and a half when I was a student at SAIS in 19, uh, from 1989 to 1991. And at that time, I, I had just come from, from Thailand, where I'd been working with Burmese exiles and, and student dissidents and, and refugees. And I set up something here called the Burma Roundtable. It was, I think, the first effort to sort of mobilize interest and, and concern about the situation and, and, and human rights situation in Burma. And it was just me and um, Tom Melanowski, who was then working for um, Senator Moynihan, and uh, Mike Jendrizik, for those of you who might remember him from Asia Watch, and a couple of others. And in some ways, I mean, things have changed so much in, in Burma, but in some ways, some of the dynamics, I think, remain the same in terms of discussions around the effectiveness of sanctions and, and versus engagement to try to, to move the needle in, um, in, in, I was going to say in Rangoon, but now it's in Apidaw, so I guess that's one change in the country. And so I'm, I'm really pleased also to be here just at, around the time of the launch of my new book. Um, and I'll say over the next 20 minutes or so, sort of some of the broad themes of that book, and then uh, hopefully we can have a, 
a good discussion. I'm happy to answer any of the questions that you might have. You know, when I first start, thought about writing this book was back in 2016. It was just after the, the landslide victory of the National League for, for Democracy and the coming to office of, of Aung San Suu Kyi. And I had been, by that time, about 10 years working in Burma um, on a number of different uh, reform-related efforts. And I thought that the book was going to be a fairly straightforward political history. And I wanted to tell or give people my perspective or my sense on, on why the generals had decided to take a step back from, from political control, from, from government, and to try to uh, demystify in some ways what had happened and what hadn't happened in 2011. And I think for those of you who don't know, but I think many of you might, I mean, the constitution that we have, the 2008 constitution, is not a democratic constitution. It's a hybrid constitution with democratic elements, but also uh, allows the military, gives the military autonomy, uh, as well as uh, control over still some aspects of government and a lock over any future constitutional change. I think what's important to note is that this constitution wasn't the result of any sort of elite compromise. It wasn't the result of a grassroots movement. It wasn't the result of a, of a revolution that almost came to success. It was very much a, a constitution that the army had been working on for a very long time and almost exactly the same as the uh, constitutional uh, setup that the army had first proposed as early as 1993 and 1994, uh, but which the National League for Democracy uh, had rejected as, as not good enough and, and nothing like the kind of uh, democratic system that it wanted. But by the late 2000s, the then uh, dictator uh, General uh, Than Shui was approaching 80 years of age, and he decided that he was going to push forward with his constitutional setup. He had just built his new city of, of Naypyidaw, and um, he wanted, or he decided that with his retirement, he wanted to be the person who set up the system uh, which would then uh, continue into his retirement and that would survive him and that he would choose himself the first generation of, of leaders for that new system. So when the NLD boycotted the elections in 2010, uh, his union, Solidarity and Development Party, had a clean uh, run and he was able to recycle hand-picked uh, ex-generals uh, into the new political setup. But that's when things became interesting, because I think if that was it, I think the NLD would have continued to uh, reject any offers to come under that constitutional tent, and I think most Western governments would have had trouble in, in justifying any greater engagement or relaxation of sanctions. But in 2011, the ex-generals that he had put in place, including President Thane Sein and a couple of ministers, a minority within that government, went well beyond the script that was intended at that time. And you know, part of what I worked on in, in, in writing this book was I spent 10, 15, 20 hours with some of these uh, ex-generals and ministers to try to get a better sense of why they did what they did. And by off script, I mean that over six to nine months in 2011, uh, there was a release of hundreds of and eventually thousands of political prisoners. Uh, there was an outreach directly to uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who had been released uh, from house arrest. There was an end of media censorship. There was a freeing up of the internet. Uh, there was a passing of a new law which allowed for independent trade unions. There was a whole slew of things that I think convinced or many people that something significant was happening in terms of political liberalization. Um, and when I interviewed uh, these ex-generals, what I discovered was that there wasn't a kind of grand strategy. There wasn't an overall um, agenda in terms of where, uh, where to move. There certainly wasn't a consensus within the military establishment, but it was these few ex-generals who for very personal motivations and very different personal motivations decided to push this liberalization envelope in a way which then made it possible for Washington to respond. And so in a way there was also an alignment of the stars. 
at exactly the same moment that I think Washington under the Obama administration was looking for uh, a way in which to engage with the generals and, and rethink sanctions, which everyone by 2011 knew wasn't that effective. Uh, the ex-generals in Naypyidaw did just enough to, to justify that engagement. And so over late 2011, you had uh, both Duong San Suu Kyi feeling that, okay, there's at least something significant here and it's worth at least testing to see if this might be a first step towards further democratic change. But you also had the visit of Hillary Clinton and later in 2012 of, of Barack Obama himself and then the rolling, the quick rolling back of many of the major sanctions. And so in a way we live in the, 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 the platform or the stage that was created in 2011 of both, of not democracy, but much greater political freedom on the one hand uh, and um, a, a reconnection with the West and the rolling back of most sanctions on the other. And I think my point I would make on that is simply that you know, because the Constitution is something that it's not, it, it wasn't a compromise, it wasn't a sudden thing, it was a, a long drawn out process which led to the Constitution, uh, it is for the army in a way the end game, it's not the start. And so for, even though for the NLD it was seen as the first tentative step towards democracy for the army, this is the package which it's comfortable with. So I think the chances of further uh, constitutional change uh, which the NLD is now trying uh, to achieve is, is probably quite slight. But by um, 2016, 2017, with the violence that we saw in, in Rakhine and the exodus of hundreds of thousands of, of Rohingya refugees, both to, uh, to Bangladesh in 2016, and then again a much bigger number, um, the largest single refugee exodus since the Second World War uh, in August, September, October of 2017, I had felt I had to take a step back and, and think much more carefully about issues around race and identity, belonging and citizenship as well. And this was at a time when the peace process that I had worked on uh, seemed to be uh, going pear-shaped, uh, was increasingly moribund, wasn't really looking uh, fit for purpose. And in thinking about these issues around identity uh, and ethnic conflict, uh, I felt I had to go much deeper into the colonial past and the legacies of colonialism as well. And I think, again, many of you who've, who've studied or, or thought about Burma know this, but I think it's worth saying that you know, Burma is a modern creation. Uh, the borders of the country are new. There were many different uh, independent uh, Burmese kingdoms over a thousand years or more in the Irrawaddy Valley, uh, different peoples and, and, and different polities in the surrounding uplands. Uh, constantly shifting pattern of, of authority. Uh, but the modern country, in terms of the modern borders, uh, was a creation of the British Indian Empire, uh, which over three different wars conquered all of what is now uh, Burma and set these borders with China and the rest. And Burma was created first as a military occupation after tens of thousands of, of deaths and a bloody pacification in the, in the 1880s, but also created as a racial hierarchy, the first ever in Burma where people, uh, because of their race, as Europeans were at the top of the social pyramid uh, and others further down in the ordinary Burmese cultivators uh, right at the, at the bottom. And so Burma first developed as this sort of racial hierarchy, but also again as a province of British India. And as a province of British India, what that meant uh, was that um, Burma was not just open to immigration from the rest of what was then British India, uh, but that because Burma was a slightly better off place in terms of income um, and uh, job opportunities, millions of people from the rest of British India, from the Indian subcontinent, uh, came into Myanmar over the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries. 
2 million a year at a time when the population of the country was only 13 million. By the 1920s, Rangoon was the biggest immigrant port in the world after New York City. And what that meant was that by the 1920s, by the time that modern politics in Burma uh, first emerged, this idea, first this British idea, which was growing, of categorizing people into racial and ethnic categories, and then determining that there was a separate Burmese race and set of Burmese races that were indigenous to the country, as opposed to other races that were alien to this country, became very much set in the popular imagination and in the elite imagination as well. By the 1920s and especially in the 1930s with the Great Depression and increasing economic anxiety and economic competition, these feelings of, of, of difference and racial difference and the need to protect this racial difference from the rest of India but also from Chinese migrants hardened. Uh, the first uh, Burmese Indian uh, racial riots were in 1930. There was a second set in 1938 um, as well. And so this idea of the Burmese as a race apart goes to the very heart of the Burmese political DNA and this imagination of the country as a small country that could at any point be overwhelmed by much bigger countries, India and China, uh, to, the, to the north and, and, and to the west. In 1937, I mean in 1947, as you all know, India was partitioned and Pakistan created uh, on the basis of a perceived difference in, in religion. Uh, Burma was partitioned from the rest of India. It was the first partition of India in 1937 on the, on the, on the perception of a, of a difference in race. So in a way, it was a polity that was established on the idea of, of racial difference and, and racial identity. And of course, this colonial legacy carries on by the 19... <clears throat> 80s and 1990s under different citizenship laws and different regulations, but much more under practice, especially under the isolation of the army that the army imposed after 1962, uh, a kind of nativism uh, developed in which, again, uh, the idea of the indigenous person, the indigenous race, the indigenous ethnic group uh, was not only celebrated, but it became the central um, uh, ideology of the country in a way. And especially by the late 19. 80s, when socialism and left-wing ideologies began to collapse, it was a sort of nativist sentiment uh, that dominated the political landscape and really had no, uh, no opposition uh, across the board. And of course, this relates directly to uh, debates and discussions today about uh, ethnicity in the country, about whether federalism is the right solution for a country of different ethnic categories, about whether Muslims in Rakhine as Rohingya uh, as an identity exists and, and should belong to the country in the same way. And all of this stems back from a much deeper colonial legacy that, that I try to explore in my book. And it connects as well, of course, to the long history of armed conflict in the country. In uh, uh, Christmas Eve 1941, uh, 300 Japanese Mitsubishi bombers bombed downtown Rangoon and, and a few other areas in the city and killed over 2,000 people. And since that time, uh, Burma has not known a single year where uh, there has been no armed conflict in the country. We have some of the longest running armed conflicts anywhere in the world. It started after independence with the communist insurrection, but by the 1950s had taken on a very strong ethnic uh, dimension uh, as well. And you know, if you think about the armed conflicts in, in, in Myanmar, uh, most of them, and this is why I have this map up there, is most of them are situated now in the, in the northeast quadrant of the country. 
and are intimately tied with uh, Burma's bilateral relationship with China. It's intimately tied to uh, the Chinese border. It's intimately tied to illicit industries that are in that part of the country. Uh, it's very much related now to the future of China's BRI projects and the China-Myanmar economic corridor that's planned. Um, and we have a peace process that was started in 2011, but really, again, is not fit for purpose given the complexity of the different uh, dynamics at play. And one of those dynamics that's at play is the political economy. And when I was writing the book, you know, as I'd mentioned, I first thought I would be writing about the political history of the, of the country, mainly of the last 10 years or so, and then delved much more into these issues around race and identity and the armed conflict as well. But the more I traveled around these past couple of years and, and, and talked to people and did research and did interviews, I realized that you know, an even deeper current in terms of understanding Burma today wasn't any of these issues, either identity or, or politics, but was really the political economy of the country. And unless one understands the political economy of the country, I think one understands very little about what, where Burma is today and, and, and where it might be going. And so let me just say a few things about that over the next five to, five to 10 minutes, and then I'll, I'll, I'll open up for, um, I'll end. Um, the modern political, the economy, political economy of the country began under British occupation, and it was a very exploitative, as you can imagine, political economy based almost entirely on the extraction of natural resources and the export of primary commodities and the setting up of all infrastructure around that. What that meant was that by the time the British left in 1948, uh, Burmese politics was entirely dominated by the left. And Burmese politics in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s were all between different parts of different socialist movements and parties and communist movements and parties. And you had the communist opposition, armed opposition in the hills. You had different socialist governments, army-backed socialist governments, and other socialist governments at the, at the center in, in Rangoon. By the late 1980s, um, those socialist experiments had failed or seemed to have failed completely. And even though the history of the democracy uh, movement in Burma is always uh, begun in 1988 with the abortive uprising and then the coming to uh, the organization of the National League for Democracy and the, the coming to four of Aung San Suu Kyi, in a way for the political economy, the pivotal year is 1989. And in 1989, what happened in Burma was four things at exactly, more or less exactly the same time. The first was the collapse of the Burmese way to socialism and the transition uh, from uh, a socialist economy to a free market economy with the liberalization of, of industry, trade, foreign investment, tourism, privatization of many industries, and the explicit uh, aim of the government to, explicitly articulated aim of the government to move towards a form of capitalism. Secondly, at exactly the same time, uh, you had the opening of the border with China. And China had been encouraging Burma to open the border. This was the time when China was also coming out of its isolation and beginning its, its, its gigantic industrial revolution. And the border was formally opened. Third is that the Burma Communist Party collapsed. So the Burma Communist Party actually controlled the entire border, but that insurgency collapsed and was substituted or fractured into a number of different, mainly but not all ethnic-based militia. And then the Burmese army, at the same time, then agreed to cease fires with these new militia and not only allowed them but encouraged them to go into any kind of business they want. And many of them went, or at least several of them went, into uh, illicit industries like the production and trafficking of, of opium and, and heroin. And so in that way, um, you had a Burmese free market system that began 
to, uh, was born and began to evolve in a very unique uh, circumstance intimately tied to a set of security and other dynamics on the Burma-China border, and within a couple of years, also in a context where there were increasing Western sanctions and cutoff of, of, cutoffs of, of Western aid. And so you've had this weird political economy from the start, but it's mutated into even stranger ways over the past 20 and 25 years. In the process, it has created a level of wealth inequality uh, that is unprecedented in the country or unparalleled in the country uh, since colonial times. It has also wrecked havoc on the natural environment through many places of the country. It's led to uh, the confiscation of millions of acres of land from, from cultivators and other villagers uh, as well. In the beginning, uh, drugs were an important part of the political economy and the, and the, and the, uh, um, the investment of, of black money from the drugs trade into the official economy through Rangoon real estate and construction, for example. Uh, soon, by the uh, 1990s, there was also a booming uh, industry in, in, in basically the cutting down of Burma's forests and the export of, of timber, especially to Thailand, but also to China increasingly. You had, by the late 1990s, the development of a mining industry around jade mining, which was estimated to be worth in the billions of dollars by the 2000s. Uh, and then you had a number of other different economies develop, uh, so that by the late 2000s, uh, many uh, businessmen and others who had been involved in these extractive industries in the beginning uh, became to be, uh, in an attempt to become more legitimate and to move away from them, uh, solely focused on real estate development and uh, construction in the big urban areas, both the building of Napido, but especially the construction sector in, in Rangoon. And so you've basically had this, this new system, and, and my main point on this is that people often talk about the army's hold on the economy. The army's hold on the economy actually was significantly uh, reduced uh, after 2011. But it didn't really matter because by 2011, you had extremely weak, in many ways, state institutions, bureaucracies that had withered away under 20 years plus of, of dictatorship and, 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 and long periods of army rule. And instead, you had networks around money-making, rackets into these illicit economies, uh, rackets across the country that really crossed every ceasefire line, every racial line, every religious line, and had thrown up multi-billion dollar economy that was largely invisible to the outside world. And I would argue that the dynamics around that, which today includes the largest methamphetamine industry in the world, at which the UN estimates is worth anywhere from 50 to 70 billion dollars a year, um, as being a part of how day-to-day -day life is shaped in Burma and political incentives and dynamics operate in Burma in a way that is arguably more important than many of the political and identity issues that we often center on when we think about the country. And very finally, let me just mention that, you know, when I, for me, the hardest thing in writing the book was to try to decide at the end how optimistic or, or pessimistic to be. And you can imagine from all the things that I've said that, you know, the, the, the pessimistic side of the ledger is, is, is pretty full. On the optimistic side, of course, you have, um, I would say, a, a much freer uh, political society despite all of its problems and setbacks than we've had uh, in generations since 1962 except for people in conflict areas, in Rakhine, the Rohingya up in the north, Kachin IDPs and others, uh, you've had people whose material life is at least arguably much better than at any time uh, in the past. And you have 
a new generation of young people, I think, who are much more exposed to the outside world and really trying to, to make a difference and to, and to lead their country in catching up with the rest of the region. So in a way, you could say maybe it's a little bit 50-50, but then when you add on to that climate change and what's likely to happen and the impact of climate change, global climate change on, on Burma, it's very hard to see how a country this poor and this divided uh, is going to be able to, to make it through over the coming decades. And, and I hope in our discussion what we can talk about also is a fundamental conceptual problem which I, I have difficulty grappling with, which is that you know, on the other hand, you have all the things that I mentioned, dozens of different ethnic armed organizations, hundreds of militia, multi-billion dollar illicit economies, weak state institutions, the impact already of climate change. But then, despite what's happening in the periphery on the Bangladesh border and in the north, you have a relatively peaceful country. So what is holding this together? Do we have the conceptual framework for really understanding uh, the politics or the political setup in a place like Burma, which is so uh, based on personal and patron-client relationships. Is it the case that Burma is a country which is just at the verge of tipping over into failed state and much worse violence? Or is there something else that's holding this country together which would make us optimistic in terms of both its future, but also perhaps encouraging and even pressuring it uh, to do better? So thank you very much. I think I'm going to pick up where you left off with the, you know, complexity of the situation and where Burma might be going. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about in the book um, when Burma's opening up to the West, its, its transition or semi-transition to democracy, the peace process, you know, none of these really address the central questions around identity. That, were, that emerged out of you know, historical legacies of colonialism and, and decades of military rule and led to a really kind of harsh nativism, as you said, um, uh, around uh, ethnic, religious, racial lines. Um, and of course, you know, now that we, we have elections, semi-democracy, um, democracy is not always known for being particularly good at protecting minority rights, as we've seen with the Rohingya and, and uh, armed conflict in other areas. Um, and so I guess the question is, you know, how, wh how can we imagine uh, or how, what is the theory of change where Burma could get to a society that more has more tolerance and pluralism? Um, you talked in the book about a, a failure of imagination. Um, is it, uh, can, do you think that the primary hope uh, channel venue for that kind of change would be a kind of political leadership that we're not seeing now? Or are there other mechanisms um, that we can think about that could help uh, over time Burma sort of move down a more again, pluralistic and, and tolerant yeah. path? No, I think leadership is obviously important and I think leadership that talks about the importance of tolerance and that celebrates diverse, that's in all countries, not just in Burma, mm -hmm. would, be, would be a good thing to, to see. I think that, it, you know, it seems like a small thing, but I think a big part of the answer is also just to, kids, to teach kids history in a better way. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, kids are taught in Burma history, uh, one, the teaching system is, is very poor, kids learn a lot of things by, by rote, um, but the teaching of history, to the extent that it's taught at all, is within an extremely narrow nationalist discourse, mm -hmm. um, with no uh, teaching of global history, no teaching of, of Burma's centuries-old global connections, no teaching of the ways in which identity and ethnic identity have formed and, and changed over, over the years and, and decades and centuries. And I think 
that is part of changing the way in which people imagine their country and, and, and what they're interested in and how they feel about themselves. I think that's one thing. I think also it's about really taking apart the peace process into a few different parts to be focused on individually or differently. I think, you know, I think it's important to have a, a radical uh, program of anti-discrimination in the country. Where, like we have an anti-discrimination, uh, anti-corruption commission, we should have an anti-discrimination that mm -hmm. really looks at the uh, specific um, uh, ways in which discrimination is practiced and try to tackle them. Um, I think that that's different, though, from the issues around decentralization, administrative and, and fiscal decentralization, and how the constitution might be changed to allow. And that that's something for parliamentarians and, and CSOs. Whereas the anti-discrimination initiative could happen independent of any peace process, uh, just unilaterally by the government. And I think that's different yet again from uh, the armed conflict in the northeast of the country, mm. where China has to be a big part of uh, whatever even temporary solution is found, because it's a big part of the dynamic there. So I think one needs to disaggregate the peace process as well. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you about um, US policy. We're here in Washington, of course, so a lot of people are interested in, uh, in, in how the U.S. is engaging Burma, um, what, the, what the best kind of policy approach and choices would be. Of course, we're in a pendulum. We, had, you know, we came from a very harsh sanctions regime to opening up uh, um, with a lot of optimism, perhaps false optimism, not anchored in a clear understanding of the complexity and challenges uh, that, that Burma's facing on a, on a variety of fronts. Now, there's, um, after the Rohingya crisis, there's a growing uh, appetite for more sanctions, um, uh, and so this is the big debate going on right now. So how, how, what are your views on the question of sanctions and engagement versus isolation? Um, if, the, if, the, if, if we could magically wish that uh, all policymakers in Washington read your book and came away with a much clearer, more, more um, sophisticated understanding of Burma's legacies and structural issues, what, what would a more um, enlightened US policy perhaps look like? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think part of the reason we're stuck in this same debate or dynamic that we seem to have been for a long time on sanctions or, or, or swung back to it. I mean, one mm -hmm. is it's understandable. I mean, given the scale of the violence, and the mm -hmm. refugee exodus, and people feel they want to do something, issues of accountability are very important on, mm -hmm. on people's minds, and people want to look for ways in which to pressure uh, Burmese government or, or army into, into, into moving in a certain direction. But I think that's based on a, on a lack of, or what's the word, uh, lack of reflection on how sanctions worked and the impact that sanctions had in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened was that, you know, sanctions, I, my argument all along, really since the 1990s, was that sanctions were going to be ineffective in, in Burma mm -hmm. and uh, potentially extremely counterproductive. Mm -hmm. uh, they had allowed this political economy, this crony capitalist economy to grow in a cocoon that benefited many of the people at the top of that pyramid. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first engaged with people at the top generals and others in, in the late 2000s, mm -hmm. I was the one who had to try to convince them that sanctions were important and they might think about certain measures to, to mitigate them. They themselves didn't see sanctions as a problem mm. at all. I think part of the thing that happened mm. was in 2011 when, when the politics began to shift and, and people all, you know, suddenly over six months went from this feeling of Burma being a place that was never going to change, this dark place that was never going to change, to suddenly embracing the seemingly miraculous change. Mm -hmm. People forgot to do the homework in the middle of, of thinking through why it had changed and assuming that maybe sanctions were a big part of that change. Mm -hmm. And so by not 
doing a proper evaluation of what the impact of sanctions has been, I think it's been that much easier for people to grab onto that again mm -hmm. as a possible policy tool, whereas I don't think it would be effective going forward in the way that it wasn't effective in the past as well. Mm -hmm. um, in, this, in the wake of the Rohingya crisis, um, of course, China has stepped in uh, as, a, as a friend, uh, offering a more benevolent approach. Um, uh, what, how, how would you describe the role of, of China in, in Burma? Of course, you know, Burma's taken a very cautious approach towards China, but at a time when friends like the United States are perceived to be backing away, um, the role of China, for lots of reasons, has certainly been growing in, in influence. Um, how, how would you describe the Bur you know, Burma's, the, the average people and, and the government, sort of their feelings towards yeah. Chinese influence? Um, maybe a few things. One is, one is to say that, you know, I think after, the, after 2017, when relations with the West cooled dramatically mm -hmm. and, and very quickly, I think probably people in, in Burma, meaning in the political establishment, felt that they had a couple, three different choices. One choice was to try to climb up a very difficult hill in terms of trying to, to meet Western concerns, being unsure what they would find at the top of that hill in terms, mm -hmm. of, in terms of response. Second would be to, to welcome kind of China's embrace at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think instead they went with a third option, which was to try uh, very hard to cultivate much uh, closer relations with other countries like Japan, Korea, ASEAN mm -hmm. countries, and, mm -hmm. and I think from, from, from their point of view that was probably a rational uh, choice at the time. I think in mm -hmm. terms of China, you know, the Chinese had been um, uh, recommending to the Burmese for a long time through the late 2000s, you know, please reform, please get Western sanctions off your back, mm. uh, why don't you move towards at least some quasi-civilian setup? don't expect us to keep or please don't have us you know continue to have to protect you the UN Security Council mm. and I think when the Burmese started to do exactly <coughs> what they had been recommending the Chinese were uh, shocked and dismayed by the speed with which the Burmese then seemed to be jumping into the arms of mm. other countries and mm -hmm. especially the United States yeah. um, and the abandonment which it seemed to be uh, welcoming um, mm -hmm. Uh, Western uh, engagement and, 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 and influence. And, and I think with the way in which the Mitzone Dam had been suspended in 2012, which I think and I explained in my book, had really nothing to do with uh, the Burmese government at the time wanting to uh, shift away from China necessarily. It mm -hmm. wasn't meant as a signal uh, uh, to uh, pivot towards the West, and it was much more a result of internal politics. But th for the Chinese, I think what they read was that this was an act of, of, of pretty f profound kind of disrespect for them. Mm. And I think a feeling that if, you know, if even a little country like Burma could do this, you know, what is China's standing as a, as a great and rising power? So I think the Chinese felt on the back foot for many mm. years. Mm -hmm. And I think having a peace process that involved armed groups on its border that was funded by the European Union, the Japanese, and the Norwegians was also something that they saw as, as, as fundamentally threatening to them mm -hmm. because it, it, it opened up a degree of uncertainty right up on its border where there had been fighting in those years as well. Yeah. So I think the Chinese see an opportunity, but I think the Chinese are playing a long game. And however important BRI and China-Myanmar economic corridor are to Beijing, I think the bigger dynamic at work on the ground are not the big government-to-government -government projects, but the thousands of small and medium businesses and investors that are coming across that open border, um, doing some good things and creating jobs and everything else, mm -hmm. but will almost certainly lead to a much bigger Chinese footprint in the mm -hmm. country, mm -hmm. at least over the medium term. Mm -hmm. um, and let me ask you about um, the name Burma. The audience has probably noticed that you use the word Burma, not the official 
name, Myanmar. Can you tell us why, why? you use that name and how you distinguish between yeah, the two? Yeah, I just like it. <laughs> I think it sounds better in English. I, one of the things that I really <laughs> hoped in 2016 with the election victory of the NLD is maybe Donald Trump would change the name back, but apparently that's not anywhere on the cards. Um, I also try to explain in the beginning of the book that mm -hmm. you know, the, the name change in 1989 was done as part of this kind of nativist project and the, and mm -hmm. the shift of all these uh, uh, proper names from uh, uh, an English uh, pronunciation to a, to a Burmese pronunciation. And for those mm -hmm. of you who don't know, Burma and Myanmar are the same word, like Peking and Beijing or mm -hmm. Cambodia and Cambodia. Um, and so it was a little bit of a of a feeling that that wasn't necessarily a good thing, but in general, it's because of a personal preference. Mm, okay. Uh, let me open it up to questions from our audience. Uh, there's a question up here in the front row. Right here. Thanks a lot. So I have oh, two. Oh, I'm sorry, could you introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Addie Wilson, National Democratic Institute. I've got two questions one on racial identity and electoral politics, and another on the peace process. Mm -hmm. um, as we see uh, ethnonym parties uh, try and consolidate power to challenge the NLD in the upcoming election, I was curious as to whether you believe that, um, that the racial subgroups within them, uh, these sort of tensions, like for example in, in Kachin between like Jingpao and Lisu, would these uh, you know, sort of uh, sub-racial tensions be exacerbated by this kind of push towards consolidation, at least politically, or would they take a back seat to this kind of drive towards um, uh, ethnonymic uh, yeah. unity? Uh, second question is, um, tomorrow the president of our organization, Derek Mitchell, will be traveling to the Northeast. Um, some of you know his previous position was as the ambassador to Myanmar. During that time, he was explicitly told by the Chinese ambassador to stay out of that region. Don't go to Michina, don't go to Taiyunki. Um, and also, you know, the Chinese have voiced uh, opposition to uh, even Mitel cell towers and the presence of American and Western NGOs. Uh, I think this morning in the Irrawaddy, I saw a statement from the KSPP asking the United States State Department to open up a, a, an office in, 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 um, in Michina in order to sort of counter the Chinese opening their own office. Do you see the same kind of, uh, the same kind of uh, potential for involvement of the United States in the peace process in the Northeast or not so much? Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> detailed questions. I think, I mean, I would say first of all that I think that, you know, it, it's great that we have a, at least a semi-democratic transition. It's great that we have democratic processes in a way that we haven't in the past. It's great that we will have probably relatively free and fair elections in, in, in 2020. I think the danger is that in the, in the absence of a good discussion on the political economy and economic issues that are important to, to tens of millions of people, especially tens of millions of the poorest people in the country, it will be inevitable that people will instead mobilize around racial and ethnic identity. And I don't think that that is a healthy thing going forward. I think people have every right to choose their identity and to celebrate it and, and to do things around it. But I, th I have a feeling that a lot of this is happening because of 
the lack of an alternative set of discussions around issues that I know are important to people but are not articulated in any way. It's a little bit because of the collapse and the failure of the left that I mentioned in the, in the 80s that people have, I think, anxieties about uh, the, the future of their economic life, about inequality, but there's no vocabulary, there's nothing through which to, art agenda through which to articulate that. So you have a whole slew of dozens of political parties that are saying the same fairly vacuous things in terms of the future of the economy, or you have people who are setting up political parties based on ever smaller groups of ethnic identity. I think the danger is that also that in 2020 you will have a number of ethnic parties and, and a new generation of young leaders from minority ethnic communities trying very hard to use this democratic process to uh, gain seats and, and to have a role going forward. But because of the fact that Burma is actually very mixed right now, because of the demography in which people have been moving around the country, people are of mixed marriages, uh, mixed backgrounds, uh, you have very few constituencies under a first-past-post system which belong slowly to one group, self-identified ethnic group or another. So people may work hard and on the other end of it, they may have nothing to show, for, very little to show for it. Um, and because of a system in which whoever wins at the center will appoint the chief ministers in the regions, you may still have a situation where the NLD and, and what's perceived as a, as a Burman majority party dominating the entire political landscape. And I think that will, that will, that threatens to um, uh, dissat not dis dissatisfy, but uh, it, it has the threat of um, uh, making a lot of young, especially young, but ethnic leaders in general uh, feel increasingly dissatisfied with these democratic processes. I think in terms of the peace process in the U.S. taking part, I think, you know, again, as I said before, I think we really have, I don't think the peace process as it is is, is, going to, is going to solve the problem. And I think unless we disaggregate these issues around discrimination, decentralization, and the specific conflicts in the Northeast, and the specific conflicts in the Northeast, I don't think there's an easy s solution either, right? Because there, the, 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 the linchpin of everything is the United Wall State Army with 20,000 plus troops, very close to China, uh, an ally of China that the Chinese are never going to give up, and an ally of China that the Chinese will never want to have another country, foreign country, uh, have a role in, um, in, in uh, or a, a be a partner of. And I think in that situation, China is indispensable for whatever kind of ceasefire is going to stick. I think with the Kachins, the question is this. I think a lot of Kachin civil society leaders and others, if we begin to move towards a new generation of ceasefires, will want very much to make sure that this new generation of ceasefires is nothing like the last generation of ceasefires. It's not a situation where the fighting stops and the economic pie is sliced up or the extractive industries are sliced up between uh, different groups of men with guns and instead that there is some agenda for the right kind of economic development that is much more inclusive. Sadly, again, because we don't have that discussion in the center, it's very hard to imagine how that's going to work in the periphery, even if we have these ceasefires. But I think that focus, again, on the political economy issues, I think is really, really central, both for giving content to Burmese democratic processes, mm -hmm. but also in terms of opening the door to a different type of um, uh, peace process going forward. Uh, Priscilla, and I'm going to ask everyone to just <coughs> limit yourself to one question because we have a lot of people that want to ask questions. So Pr Priscilla, here. I will limit myself to one question, but I have to make a comment. Um, as you noted, the irony of this situation, the, the preoccupation with ethnic identity, uh, is that 
the, the population is increasingly mixed race. It is, there's very little pure ethnic identity or little pure ethnic identity left in the country. And, and so there are two things moving in different directions. But you didn't mention religion. I would say that, that religion is one of the sharpest divides in the country and, and has all kinds of political <coughs> implications. And would you give me some comments on yeah. that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and I think it's, but I think it, it differs so much from person to person and, and we just don't have the data to know exactly what's more important to people in what circumstance and, and how that's worked. And so if you take sort of prejudice and discrimination in the country, uh, some people will feel uh, the racial cleavage is much more and there's uh, long-standing prejudice and discrimination people of Indian descent in terms of people who look like they're of Indian descent. Um, but then for others, that's not an issue at all. And it's much more of a religious thing. And people will be much more prejudiced against Muslims in the country or people of other religious faiths. Um, and then for many ethnic minority groups, also they will feel a certain um, uh, prejudice against others. So I think it cuts across, uh, I think it cuts across uh, different communities in different ways. But I agree with you that you know, the impact of Buddhism in particular is enormous on the political culture of the country in the way people think about the future, about their own future. Um, and I think we're not anywhere close to really understanding uh, how we should think about Buddhism and the changing currents within Buddhism. So we see Mabatha, we see this as a Buddhist extremist nationalist group, but I think there are many aspects to that movement of, of millions of, of ordinary people who feel that their traditional values under siege who feel themselves at the middle of an unfair economic system and don't know how to voice that sense of anxiety and unfairness. And I think that's a problem because like in many other countries, uh, that feeling can be mobilized in many different directions. Mm -hmm. And I think unless it's mobilized around a much more progressive agenda, um, I, just don't, I, I just see us sort of moving towards a much worse situation in different ways. Hmm. Uh, this gentleman here, boy, we have a lot of questions. So please introduce yourself briefly in one question. Kevin Murphy, president of J. Austin Associates, who are implementing two projects in Burma at the moment over the last several years. My question is, um, could you share your insights about how the relationship between the generals and Aung San Suu Kyi uh, affect and interact with this crisis and the responses to it and the perceptions in, in the West about who's doing what, who's responsible for what, but how does that relationship affect this? I guess it's, I would say it's, uh, you know, I don't know for sure. And, and a lot will depend, obviously, on the, on the relationship at the very top between the state council on Sasuji and the army commander-in-chief. And to the extent that they've had meetings in private with no one else in the room, it's very difficult for anyone to say exactly what that, what that relationship is. Um, I think that, you know, for many of us um, and for many people who had been in the, in the previous government, the feeling was in 2016 when Aung San Suu Kyi came to office uh, that she would be in a position to do almost anything she wanted in terms of policy issues. Um, she was politically extremely uh, popular in the country and she had you know, universal international support at that, at that point as well. Mm -hmm. But I think from the NLD side, they, they thought it very differently. Uh, and I think until, you know, even when they went into office, they were very nervous about whether or not the army was genuinely going to hand over uh, real power and authority to them, decision-making authority to them. And I think for the first many months, they were also very fearful of, of what kind of uh, effort there might be to kind of weaken them and, and, and derail uh, uh, their, their, their uh, political rise. And I think when uh, Dong San Suu Kyi's uh, constitutional lawyer, Ukoni, was assassinated at Rangoon Airport in early 2017, it was very hard for people to say, don't be paranoid and, and there is no vast conspiracy out to, to get you. 
Uh, my point there is just that I think the NLD, uh, even though they had a huge amount of popularity and support, and I think actually had a lot of room to do a lot of things in 2016, took a decision to take a very low risk strategy of, of slowly settling into uh, a political environment in APDAW that they didn't know very well at all, many of them being ex-political prisoners who had been released just several years before. Um, but then I think by not getting a grip on that situation in terms of how they should fit into the existing political establishment, they ran the risk of being not swallowed by that political establishment, but um, seeing their options uh, narrow very quickly. Or to put it another way, I mean, it was as if there was a, there's been a sort of successful sort of tissue graft onto the existing structure, uh, but that existing structure, that unreconstructed set of bureaucracies remains the same. I think with the army in particular, I mean, it's, it's what you have in the Constitution. I mean, the army is autonomous. The army in the security sector can pretty much do what it wants. The army's counterinsurgency operations and military operations are, are directed solely by the army. I think it would be very difficult for Aung San Suu Kyi or anyone else to tell the army what to do. But in every other aspect of governance, from the budget to health, to education, to foreign investment, to foreign relations, uh, to even issues around internal humanitarian assistance, that's very much under the direction of the executive branch of the army. But that executive branch of the army, in turn, is Dawn San Suu Kyi and the minister she's appointed, but they are operating on top of, again, unreconstructed bureaucracies of tens of thousands of people uh, about whom they knew very little until very recently. And, and it goes to my basic point of, you know, these, you have the, the, the formal institutions, you can look at the organogram of different ministries and whatever, but what's hidden are the rackets, the vested interests, the economic interests that really go well, that are much stronger than the formal structures and processes themselves. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to go to uh, Vasuki here. I'm Vasuki Shastri from Chatham House. In the first flush of democracy in 2016, a lot of people were looking at Myanmar and saying perhaps they could pursue the Indian model or the Indonesian model. But Myanmar increasingly looks like Pakistan. Uh, but is there domestic debate? Is there a constituency within the NLD which is really looking at direction of travel uh, for democracy? Or it, is the army's role seen as pretty much embedded and impossible to change? No, I don't, th I don't think people think that. I, I think, I think I think the, the army's role is embedded to some extent, but I think in, in the country itself, and especially among the NLD, there's a huge amount of hope that this can change, not in you know, a generation or two's time, but in the coming years or even in the coming months. I mean, there's a specific push now to try to change the constitution. Um, I think on the one hand, uh, you have obviously an army that's been in power in different ways for a very long time, and it's, it's impossible to see them completely removing themselves from, from political life, and I'm not even sure that that would necessarily be a good thing to do in the, in the, in the short term. Um, but on the other hand, I think you, know, you have a new generation of people in the army, in institutions, in the NLD. I think there's a lot of room for good ideas in, 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 in Burma. Um, we have a situation which, where actually there is quite a lot of political freedom. The internet is almost completely free. And I think we're not using that effectively. Um, and I think it goes to what I had written about the crisis of the imagination. Mm -hmm. If everything is about you know, what is the constitutional change that's possible, and, and what other ethnic identity can form a political party and contest the elections, I don't think we're going to get very far. I think there's a whole range of other issues on which ordinary people are really interested. You know, in 2015, the USDP party uh, basically allied with Mabata, the Buddhist nationalist organization. They lost the election. I mean, they, you know, there were people, not all, but I think there were people within the USDP that tried to play that card of race and religion, and it failed. 
And instead, the overwhelming majority of people voted for the NLD because they wanted both democratic government, but also because they expected a much better life for themselves and their children. This is poor people and ordinary people across the country. But that, that hope has not been fulfilled. And I think unless much more is done on those issues and it's articulated properly, I think the slide towards a, a, you know, a shell of democracy and something different um, is, is, is the more likely uh, scenario. Okay, we have a question uh, up here in the, in the second row. Thank you, um, Piotr, from um, a fellow CISA, so I hope to use my education to the extent that you have. Um, but um, my question relates, we mentioned briefly generational matters when you were speaking, and my question relates to the potential intergenerational role and how much of an impact that could have on the uh, long-term direction that Myanmar or Burma chooses to follow, whether it gears towards more Chinese influence or Western mm. and allied system, and how much you think that could play a role? Yeah. Across the board, you mean generationally? Uh, yeah, different institutions. Yeah, different, different generations, but yeah. also maybe the role of women as well in that. Yeah. Um, it's hard on the role of women. I mean, there's, there's always been a myth in Burma that I think some people in the elite have kind of internalized that started with the British that women enjoy equality in Burma, whereas in fact that they don't. There's a huge, there's a lot of problems in Burma in terms of gender discrimination and sexual violence in the country, throughout the country, which only people are beginning to sort of realize that it's more open. Uh, open period. Um, I think in terms of generational change, the problem is that, you know, for people under 40, say, I think they've grown up now in these last 10 years of a more open environment. Um, and people are looking for ideas, answers, and I'm not sure that, um, and, the, and the opportunities for debate and discussion are there, but for some reason it's being dragged back down again into these issues of identity, which I think really are the, the uh, what's the word, the the, the core kind of problem or problematic of Burma since independence and even beyond. And I think unless we can get beyond them in an imaginative way, uh, I think you can have another generation for whom this is, this is the, the number one issue and nothing else. Having said that, I think, you know, and you ask about attitudes towards China and everything else, I think the thing about Burma is that it's so complicated in the sense that every state, every religion, every township, every city has seemingly a different set of local politics, local economic interests, uh, local views on, on different things. And so to the extent that within the Rangoon political and media class there's a lot of antipathy and hostility and, and or at least anxiety about China, uh, you can go to other parts of the country where people are trading and doing business with China and there's a new generation of kids who are learning Chinese and expecting to profit very well from, from increased economic relations with China. So it's very different from one part of the country uh, to another. But I think at a time in the whole world, in the United States, in the UK, and everywhere else, where people are trying to think anew about governance and, and all of these same issues about inequality and identity and everything else, I think the more that we can plug Burma into good, fresh discussions, the better. Um, because the, the, the problem of the country has been isolation. Um, and then since the end of isolation, it's being fed a kind of, I think, a fairly stale set of formula in terms of a way ahead. And at a time when we, we, we can and should have really interesting discussions around the world on these issues, I think the more that a younger generation of Burmese can be connected to those issues, the better are those debates. Uh, question in the back. <coughs> Hello, uh, thank you for bringing the conversation here and writing the book. Uh, my name is Lun Yen Chen. I'm from VOA Burmese. Uh, my question might be a little personal, <laughs> but I gotta ask that. 
given that as you were uh, advisor to the Tencent government and uh, seemingly you were closer to the pro-democracy movement and uh, pro-democracy uh, forces, like uh, I am wondering why are you not helping the NLD government or why NLD government is asking for your help in terms of peace process or conflict resolution in the northern Rakhine state. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, the second part of the question you would have to ask the, the, the government. I mean, in, you know, ever since I went back to Burma uh, or went, back, went to Burma in 2007, 2008 and tried to help in different ways, pretty much everyone I met, almost without exception, whether we were ministers or others, I, I offered my help. I said, if there's anything I can help with, anything I can work with you on, please let me know. And the, really the only group of people or the only ministers that actively took me up on that uh, were the reformist ex-general ministers uh, especially Usultain and Duwamin in 2011, 2012. And so they were saying, please help us, please give us advice, and so I did. I mean, I was an advisor. I was an advisor in the sense that I was part of the National Economic and Social Advisory Council. We met with the president every now and then to give our thoughts. But with these two ministers, I worked with them much more closely during those initial years of reform, 11, 12, on, on the peace process and, and other things. With the NLD government in 2016, I've gone around and I've met with many of the different ministers. Again, I've offered and said, please let me know if I can help in any way. And some, like the chief minister of Yangon, for instance, uh, my Yangon Heritage Trust works very closely with the Yangon government and, and city government. Um, and so I see him quite often and I give my views and, and, and he's been a big supporter of, of what we've tried to, to do in, in downtown Yangon. But with the others, I think my sense is just that, you know, they are, trying so hard to, uh, to be fair to them, they are trying so hard as people who have very little experience in government to get a grip even on just their own immediate bureaucracies um, that they're not really sure how to use uh, offers of outside advice in the way that they might be before. You might think that's a diplomatic uh, response, but I, I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, th whereas the ex-generals um, had much more experience and were much more confident in trying to draw in other people and knew a lot about these other people that they could draw in. I think for the NLD, it's been, it's been much more difficult over the past two or three years. Yeah, question here. Hi, um, I'm Simon Bellinas, and I'm with the International Campaign for the Rohingya and the No Business with Genocide Campaign. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the recommendations of the uh, United Nations mandated independent investigative uh, fact-finding mission on Myanmar, which has uh, focused in very clearly on military-owned companies and uh, uh, you know, thrown a lot of light on which uh, foreign uh, corporations are doing business with those entities. And you know, based on your knowledge of you know, how uh, economically embedded mm -hmm. these military-owned uh, companies are. Um, what would you think would be the, uh, you know, the effectiveness and the, uh, the impact and the results from you know, starting to push the, uh, the Burmese army out of the economy and creating more space for uh, civilian 
uh, owned companies? Yeah, great question. It's, um, so this is the FFM report from, from on, on the military and business. I think that a few things. One is that the military, when you say the military, we mean very different things because we have the, the old generals who were in power until 2011. We have the new generals who've been in power since 2011. Um, and then we have the broader kind of class of of army, ex-army, their families uh, and, and, and friends as well. But the army as, the, as an institution uh, both took itself away from and was encouraged by the government in 2011 to move itself away from many aspects of the economy. So in, up until 2011, and I think a problem with the FFM report is that it looks at the economy from before 2011 and after as if it was, hadn't changed very much whereas there had been a fundamental change in 2011. So whereas the army as an institution under the dictatorship monopolized many aspects of the economy, the importation of cars, for instance, uh, tobacco, um, alcohol, uh, through the Trade Council, much of import-export, foreign currency, uh, trading, and everything else, all of that was gone. And so the army as an institution's footprint on the economy is much, much smaller than before 2011. And many of these army-owned companies are actually loss-making companies now that are not important to the army as an institution in terms of the army's own survival. So I think, you know, as a symbolic thing, it's one thing, but in terms, uh, practically, I don't think it's going to have a big effect in terms of the army's bottom line in terms of its own budget. I think the other thing is that you have, beyond the army-owned companies, you have the whole slew of, um, whether you call them crony companies or companies that have grown up under the military regime in the 1990s and the 2000s, some of which have tried very hard to sort of legitimize themselves and go into other businesses, as I mentioned, real estate and other sectors, some of them which are relatively unreconstructed. Um, but the relationship between them and the army is, is actually, in a way, the opposite of, I think, what's in the FFM report. It's not the case that these companies have grown and become very rich and are now subsidizing the army or supporting the army. They may give a small donation when the army asks for a specific project, but out of a multi-billion dollar budget, these are, these are very small parts of it. I think instead it's the opposite, where both the army uh, as individuals, people in the army as individuals, people in these businesses as individuals, and many other individuals are all part of this huge web, an interrelated web mm -hmm. of business, capitalism, money making, uh, that links in one side to illicit industries, but links on the other side to completely legitimate business practices in Rangoon. And I think until we understand that entire web of business and money making uh, in the country, it's very hard to say exactly who is benefiting who in, in what way. And in general, I think, again, it's the reverse dynamic where it's the army, the old generals before 2011, that had helped to nurture and create these companies not in order to benefit the army as an institution, but to benefit their families and friends in the hope that, especially after retirement, these companies would help create an atmosphere, a nice house, a nice vacation in which they could comf uh, retire comfortably. So I think we really have to disaggregate between the army as an institution and individual people in terms of how money is made and how money is thought about in the country. Okay, if we have one more question, we can take it. This gentleman in the back has been patient. And then I think we'll, we'll wrap up in, in the sake of time. Uh, thank you, Chen Yu, uh, current science student. So um, since you mentioned the Mason uh, Dam project, so another uh, flag project Beijing has been investing in like, is uh, the Kyopo uh, port. So, but you know, last year there was like a renegotiation, but since, uh, since that there were not too much news. 
come from. So I'm just wondering uh, what's the current position and strategy from Myanmar government towards this project, and also how do you think the progress of the project can impact Beijing's perception of this bilateral relationship? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, um, so this is the deep sea port on the, on the Bay of Bengal, um, and that's part of one of the four or five mega projects that China hopes will be part of the China-Myanmar economic corridor. So the Myanmar government has agreed to this in, in principle. Uh, in April, uh, State Councilor went to Beijing as part of the BRI uh, forum. Uh, they recommitted to this. I think up until that point, there had been this kind of idea that uh, not only would they agree to it in principle, but a lot of things would already been agreed in detail and that several of these projects would kind of move forward quite quickly. And, and Burmese government, I think, uh, in the approach to that forum had made a decision uh, to go slow. I think there was a lot of anxiety and worry about uh, possible uh, debt trap, about other aspects of what these projects could mean for the country in terms of the environment and everything else, and just China's influence overall. And so they took a go-slow approach. At the same time, they had been developing a mechanism within the government called the Project Bank, which is meant to be a mechanism through which uh, medium and big projects were properly vetted um, from many different uh, directions. Um, and then it was decided that these Chinese BRI projects would also be in the Project Bank like any other uh, project. And I think for the Chinese government, on the one hand, I think they assume that there is Western and other influence behind this go-slow strategy. Uh, I think they don't understand the project bank and they think this might be just a, a way in which to kind of mask uh, a, a, more, a more political decision not to approve these Chinese projects. But I think again, as I said before, I think China is in it for the long game and I think they have many irons in the fire um, and I think they see this as a test for them and we'll see you know, what sort of next moves the Chinese decide to make. I mean, they're, again, they're, they're invaluable for the peace process. Um, and I think China has many levers that it can push if it wants to, uh, if it ultimately wants to see some of these projects go forward. All right, well, I'm afraid we're out of time. I feel like everyone in the audience had their hand up at one point with a question. There's a fascinating discussion, and thank you. Please join me in thanking. Thank